0: Hey, everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash RVpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our central membership for the first year. And Now to today's episode.
1: You know I'm so lucky at Real Vision. When I want to figure out the bond market, I don't have to speak to some random person in the bond market. I get to speak to Jeff Moore, who runs a trillion and a half dollars for Fidelity, and he's an amazingly nice guy, clear thinker, and is always interesting to chat to. So I can't wait to dig in it. To I want to figure out has the trend in bonds changed, or is the opportunity still there? Where are we now in the bond market? Are we at an inflection point? How should we think it through? Because a lot of people have a lot of opinions, but Jeff has skin in the game. He runs the big portfolio. Anyway, let's settle down and have a great conversation with Jeff. Macro investing is a journey. Join me, Raul Pal, as I go on a journey of discovery through the macro landscape. This is how I build my macro framework by talking to the smartest people in the world. Jeff, fantastic to get you back on Real Vision. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be back. Um, just in case people didn't see the previous um, conversation, I can't remember how long ago that was. Beginning of when was well, it? A, a year ago. ago. A year ago, right? Okay. So, just give people a little bit of background: what you do, um, that kind of thing, just to contextualize it.
0: Yeah. So, I'm a fixed income portfolio manager at Fidelity. Um, actually, Fidelity Fixed Income is based in Merrimack, New Hampshire, which is sort of one hour north of Boston. Okay, we're just over. The Massachusetts border into New Hampshire. Uh, we run $1.7 trillion from New Hampshire. You know, It's amazing. Uh, it's been a, quite a ride. Uh, I've been a portfolio manager uh, since the year 2000, so I've been through a few cycles. Um, and I started Fidelity in 1995 as a credit analyst.
1: Okay, so let's dig into it. You, When we spoke last year, I was getting more bullish on bonds and you're like, no, I think we need to wait. And you, you were clearly right. Ah. So I'll give you that. So let's go with first your big picture framework, and then we'll kind of narrow in on some time zones and and talk, you know, various parts of the market. Because I know you you focus on all sorts of parts.
0: Okay, so um, you know, thank you for thinking I was right. But you know, what I've learned as a PM is the game that never ends. So the game's never over. So the key for all of us is to realize that and just to keep soldiering on. Some days. Um, so yeah, so interest rates now are actually pretty attractive. You know, The 10-year yield touching 4% plus minus, that's a pretty good entry point in my opinion. In fact, I am going to say this, if you don't like bonds now, you just don't like bonds. Right? Keep that in the back of your mind that this is a pretty good entry point, regardless of your sort of view on the Fed, whether they do 25 at the end of the month of March or 50, a surprise 50, the bond market's in great shape that way. And the key question mark for all of us, the only question, is what's inflation doing? And and the, and the way that I look at inflation, I'll give you a quick hitter on this, uh, is I think we hit peak inflation late last year, okay? And now the question you have, if you want to use a ski analogy for all of us in the north, are we in a green run, a blue run, or a black run, right? <laughs> Love and I would argue right now we're in a green run. We're still trending down, you know, we're at the fence, I uh, Core CPI expectation of three and a half percent by Christmas or next year, or this this Christmas, looks possible, maybe probable, maybe they're a little off. So that puts us on the green run, which is to say, the bond yield curve is going to start getting steadier and steadier.
1: The broader question before we dig into inflation and where we are on the business cycle, the broader question to me is, going a, a year, year and a half in the future. Is inflation sticky, or is it mean reverting? Do do we go back to the trend based on the demographics and the structural issues within the Western world, not just the United States? I I stare at the bizarrely, I used to use just that long-term regression chart of of 10-year bond yields, and I, I called it the chart of truth, and eventually, it broke out. But I've been looking at the log chart of yields, which is a bit bizarre thing to do. And it basically shows the downward trend in yields and then shows the pandemic spike down and a almost perfect matching reversal. And I keep staring at that thinking, are we sure we're back in a new inflation, sticky, higher rates environment? Or is this just the opposite of the pandemic? Where do you fall on? I mean, none of us know, but where do you fall on that thought process?
0: So I I like where your head is at. If you go ahead two or three years and say, where are we going to be? And there's a few scenarios. Right? So I always think in terms of scenarios, and I have my quants on the team, we think a lot about what, what could be the scenarios and how do we know we're on this scenario without. The number one thing you mentioned was demographics. Think about the G10. We're in population decline right now. Not the United States of Canada, but the rest of the G10. China, almost certainly population fell by a million people. There's a, a scenario of here by 2030, the population in China falls by 30 million a year a year. And if you think GDP is the number of people working, times the output per person, the number of workers are going down, you got to headwind the GDP. So the question when I look forward is not whether we have a fast-growing economy globally. I don't think that's possible because of demographics. The question then is which, which, how are we sharing the GDP between workers and profits and companies, right? Those will be the questions. Uh, and one of the sticky parts to the economy that we watched this year and maybe it will persist, is the labor market. Uh, Interestingly, in the labor market this time, uh, the the groups that have been laid off lately are the white-collar workers, not blue-collar workers. Historically, it was the other way around. Historically, blue-collar workers take longer to come back to the workforce once they're laid off, partly because they have a specific skill, and they're kind of saying, I'm going to wait and see if my company hires me back because that's my best and highest use. Whereas white-collar workers... Uh, those workers can can are probably better educated in general, college educated, they move a little faster, they bounce back a little faster, and they have transferable skills. And so we could be in a space here, right, where the workforce here, blue collar workers are all employed because of demographics and they're not going anywhere. And as we age out, there's more demand. And all of the churn is in the white collar space, which churns a lot differently than the old days, which is to say, that wage inflation should be more sticky than it's been, but not as sticky as it was this year or last year.
1: How I've thought about wage inflation as well is I look at the labor force participation rate, which is going to continue falling as people come out of the labor force. So those that remain in the labor force, their wages may be stickier, but they're less a proportion of aggregate demand because all of these guys are out of the labor force. And I'm 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 worried that we're looking at the stickiness of of wages and not looking at it as a percentage of what could have been total wages.
0: Well, and, and we, we interestingly the CPI buckets was just changed a little bit. You know how we measure inflation, we changed the the weights. Um, in part and parcel, we're trying to always change those weights to be reflective of things like that that are changing that are truly changing the market. When I think about the marketplace right now and I think about bonds and yields, you're compensated now for like inflation that's north of 3% but below four. You're compensated for that in in the 10-year part of the curve, in my personal view. The question you have is, are we going to head back that 2% down that the Fed's got in their mind? Probably not in, in 2023. But there's a high probability somewhere in 2024, 2025, what we do, because there are enough components of the CPI that are volatile. Even if wages are sticky, that can pull you down. Whether it's commodities, whether it's rent equivalents, orders equivalent rent, which is what forty percent is based on housing, you can imagine a world where housing does go down and has some negative comps year over year, and pulls us down. You're going to have obviously base effects, um, but there's and then the goods questions: is there a bit of a supply side shock still going through the system, so that that'll peter out as well. So I think that the the CPI in the future will look a lot like the CPIs in the old days, which is to your point. Um, And I think once the pandemic, you know, the T plus 24 months happens, right? All the shockwaves of the pandemic, all the decisions that were made by government, all those things sort of filter out. Uh, So I don't think there's any reason yet to say to yourself, oh, I don't think we're on a 2% inflation path in the next couple of years. I wouldn't go there.
1: I don't think anything structurally changed with inflation. Components may change. And the other thing I look at is you talk about the blue collar workers and white collar workers. Two things have happened that I think are like Cambrian shifts and people aren't focused on. I think the rise of AI, ChatGPT, I think is probably the biggest deflationary shock maybe the world has ever seen in the shortest period of time. I think it's bigger than China entering the WTO. Because of the power that this unlocks, and who do you actually need for certain jobs? I mean, we never thought creators and music artists and artists and graphic designers would be the first to be disrupted by AI, but they were. Now, sure, there's people who can use the technology and will replace jobs in different ways. But I see that for white collar workers and think, okay, this is really interesting. You know, if ChatGPT can pass the bar exam, the accounting exam, the securities exam. It's like, okay, that's a big signal. The other one is I, I look at Amazon. Amazon, over the last three years, four years, has employed half a million robots. It's now a third of their labor force. Now, robots work 24 7, 365, never take a day off. So that's basically a robot equivalence or a human equivalence that they're. they're of their productivity in warehouses is now coming from robots. And I'm like, that's not going to stop either. So if I live in this potential future world, I'm like, we've got some very, very big deflationary headwinds to still deal with.
0: Well, and if you actually go back, I think Alan Greenspan's book, uh, The Age of Turbulence, 2004. And just go to the last chapter where he talks about the future. And he pretty much nailed it. And he said that the te- technology keeps coming, keeps and, and technology in his mind at the time displaces blue-collar workers because their job can re- be replaced by a robot and empowers white-collar workers. So a white-collar worker with technology becomes a superhuman, they're able to generate, make themselves do more and faster, right? And someone else gets displaced. And he said, this is going to be the battle over the next 30 years. I think, you know, the chat story, ChatGPT is the same story a continuation of what he said and so there will be deflationary forces because that's what technology does it will displace some parts of our, our workforce
1: yeah and and it feels to me that it'll offset some of the deglobalization i mean there's we talk a lot about deglobalization it's actually not much in the data really but let's assume that it trends my guess is technology will offset it because you know i look at the tesla factories they're all building there's no humans in them or very few it's all robots,
0: yeah, and and then they have to be serviced by electricians and really highly skilled
1: workers, who's will maintain a higher wage to get a larger share of the overall income pie. I guess that's correct. They will, but you're right; others will be displaced, and
0: and so I'm looking forward a few years, and I'm I'm not I'm pretty calm about the future for inflation. I don't see us having had a disruptive moment that we're going to spit off into the universe. But I think in the here and now. The Fed's going to struggle to beat its 3.5% target set by December. The market kind of believes it, but kind of doesn't believe it. And so where we are now with the 10-year yield feels pretty good. And actually offsets, in my mind, a lot of scenarios for you. And if we do get a shock, whether it's commodities fall, war, if we get something that without the grain, ownership equivalent rent starts to fall, things like that. If we do get that decline, we're going to be in a space in my mind that um, you know the market will have to react and could react quickly. That gets to that's the ski slopes. So like the the base case is green, going slow. The market's going to churn a little bit, but you're not really going anywhere. The worst of the bond market damage is behind us, not in front of us. But there are scenarios here that um, that where the bond market goes. Oh my God, Fed's getting there faster. It is starting to bite in a few sectors, their rate hikes and so forth. The financial conditions did tighten enough. And in those scenarios, we get on a black run. And we actually can, um, we have some scenarios now depending on ownership equivalent rent. If ownership equivalent rent goes from sort of 7% to zero, right, But you can make an argument that, you know, if you were looking at Redfin or Zillow or something like that, we're we're rolled over. If we get ownership equivalent rent to zero, just that one component of CPI, the US has deflation in
1: July. That's it's I'm my base case is actually sub two percent by June because all of my forward looking indicators suggest that owners equivalent rent and other stuff goes for goes down. Almost the entire commodity complex is now massively deflationary. And if oil has another leg lower from here, it really pushes I mean people should have woken up when they saw Nat Gas fall 75% from its peak and realize, okay, it's not the world people predict. But what's interesting, Jeff, is your scenario is quite out of consensus. Almost everybody I speak to is like, interest rates are going to stay high forever. Inflation is going to be much stickier. We've gone into a whole new world. Everything's changed. And the monetary largesse of the past has come home to roost and see. I told you so. That's that's a lot of the narrative. And you're kind of more sanguine saying maybe, but most likely this is an aberration that ends up drifting back down to where we were before.
0: Yeah, and that's my take. And you know, maybe they're right. Uh, I, I just don't I don't see it. It doesn't there's nothing that I've been I've seen that's compelling enough to say, okay, aha, this is way different, other than rates did go up, but they went off and like we, we had the tenure one percent. That was truly terrible value, right? There was no yield there. Now you can have 10 year at 4%. That is sort of takes us back to the mid 1990s, sort of as an average place to be. That's probably a fair value if you have a 30 year horizon. And if you start bringing that into 10 year horizon, it's going, yeah, 4% is not a bad starting point, especially in my mind. The, again, the question will be what's happening with inflation? And on the ownership of rent, the hard part, right, is the calculation. Is designed to be a lag calculation. So they only change a six to six. So it's one of the, by depth design, this is supposed to be a lagging indicator of CPI. And so it is. So I think as for clients out there, watch the order scroll grant. That's the big question mark. If it gets to zero, you've you you've got your, the Fed is way ahead of schedule. But if it stays where it's been in the last month or t- 0.5, 0.6, the Fed's on the track for maybe getting to its 3.5% by By December. In the end, that's all you can say. Watch the data, and the data is kludgy, so you can't really hold on to any one data point because some of this data are data series that we've used for 50, 60, 70 years. Some are surveys, and we just mushed them all together and said, here's CPI. And and again, over time, it works, but in any one month, if you go, well, that doesn't make sense, well, it probably doesn't make make sense. And so we're going to get another data point in March for CPI. We're going to have jobs data in March. Just as a, as an investor, tag up to those things. I think you're on the green run, Nisha, you're probably okay. And it, but it also means you still have your headwind to risk assets like stocks because the Fed isn't going anywhere while we're on the green run.
1: At Evernorth Health Services... The other part of the equation that everybody stopped talking about is growth. It's really—it's it, bizarre to me. We only talk about inflation; and nobody talks about growth, right? How does growth evolve this year? Are you where are you in the recession camp, and the trend rate of growth coming out of it? Let's go with the trend rate of growth first, and then we'll come more into the business cycle elements.
0: You know, so if I look at sort of business cycle, and this gets very tricky because business cycles can be super long or super short, or can change in a moment. I think you have to recognize that interest rates higher is a headwind just to leverage in the system. It is. It it may be that we're going to have some growth, but growth should be on a path that's going to flatten or fall. So when you add, the fact, with higher rates, discount rates are higher. So if you're a company, your fertile rate to do the next CapEx project went higher, that's all. Is you, you, basically your CapEx decision will be what's the, my cost of capital. When interest rates go up, your cost of capital went up. And so your CEO and the CFO are going to say, okay, let's do all the fast payback CapEx. Let's do all the technology CapEx. Let's leave the big greenfield thing for another year. We'll make the decision in six months. And I think when that starts to get, and I think it is hitting, you'll you'll be in a slower growth path. Whether or not you're actually in recession, I don't know. And for you and I, what matters isn't whether the economy is in recession. It's kind of sectors in the economy. Because you think about the 12 sectors in the economy, maybe you think it's 10. You always have two sectors that are in recession, even in good times, because they're out of style, they're 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 in transformation. You have two or three sectors that are rocking and rolling even through the worst recession because they're where there's pucks heading, so to speak. So when I think about that way, when I pull back as an investor and in sort of bond investor Fidelity, we're kind of always looking for those companies that we think that, you know i don't want to call them recession proof but they they're sort of they they're in control of their destiny they can be what they need to be and and take a lot of different scenarios and so that helps us when we're buying corporate bonds high yield things like bank loans you're able to sort of pick your way through the sectors to say that they have more
1: control of their destiny than these other sectors a lot of people have been surprised how well credit's done in this cycle, considering the rate of change of interest rates and, you know, forward economic expectations, you know, many, uh, uh, I think there's a, a reasonable recession baked into the cake, but either way, why is credit done so okay? Can I, can I suggest
0: something? This is the anti-08, right? You think about 2008, where we were. So from 04 to 06, Al Greenspan raised interest rates, what, 350 base points, and he put the subprime mortgages and the non-conforming mortgages into prices in 06, 07. Remember all that part? Um, and we had all the three-letter words that we shall not say anymore. And and the, the banking system got colluded by, we had a banking person in 08. Okay, that's sort of a story. And think about the mortgages in 2008. Something like 40% of mortgages in, US, in the U.S. in 08 were were floating, in which they, they reset their coupon. So as Sure, Greenspan raised interest rates. Costs went up for those clients. And we also had something like 25% of the market was non-conforming. So we weren't really sure they had enough equity and staying back. You know, under the guise of never let a good crisis go to waste, the US government did. So in they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. bulk of the mortgage market will be conforming. So now I think we're 90-something percent conforming mortgages, which is to say people who have the mortgage have demonstrated they have equity live they staying power. And the other thing is, I think, are we like 98% fixed rate today versus floating? So for a, a, an American with a mortgage today, they haven't even felt reset risk. Okay? We haven't talked about a new buyer yet, but the, the average American who has a mortgage, they haven't reset a mortgage. In fact, if you have a, a 30-year mortgage, Manny or Freddie, two and five-eighths or 3%, you've just had an equity injection because you can, instead of paying off for mortgage, buy a 10-year treasury and defease your mortgage. Right? This is the anti-08 if you're a residential mortgage holder. So and that's the bulk of us in America. The bulk of us. Uh, especially the bulk of us over the age of 35, right? Because getting a mortgage is hard to do. staying up for a house is super expensive. That's that 35 class group. And so we haven't had this sort of aha aha crisis moment like we did in 08. Because the mortgage market is incredibly healthy. The second thing, think about the banking system. The banking system now gets stress tests for events that were worse than only. And the banking system's flying right through in the US. And partly they have more capital. They spent a decade doing nothing but build capital. We changed the rules on what counted as collateral capital. So, you know, the cardboard boxes no longer count as capital. <laughs> in the old days. Except in Europe. Except in Europe. Well, we could go, because I do think that the the worry for the world is rest of the world, not the U.S. this time. So if U.S. was the ground zero in 08, it's rest of the world now, not U.S. this time. And so if you put those together, so we have no, um, so financial stability is very strong in U.S. The average homeowner is great. And then everybody who had, wants a job kind of has one. You haven't had stress yet. And so why is credit done wrong? Well? Because really, we haven't had any stress yet. You, you've had, you know, maybe top line revenues fallen by selling for some, about 10%, but you haven't had that catastrophe moment like in '8. And I think that's a big, big deal. That might come a year from now or grind it, grind it out. But at this stage, it looks pretty good. And the last thing I'll say is if you look at the high yield market, there's no evidence in the last decade that high yield companies added leverage. They didn't, you know, the bad behavior of the old LBOs, the MBOs, those things that would, you know, ratchet up debt levels, they didn't do that. The high yield market kind of has matured a little bit at the margins. And the high yield market mostly has turned out its debt maturity walls into 2026, 2027, so they have nothing to default to. So then for clients, it becomes a math question. If I can get 8.5% in a high yield portfolio, and defaults are going to be less than 5%, Next year, that's still a winning trade for me. And I think that's part and parcel where things are. It doesn't mean things are great everywhere, and higher interest rates are hard on emerging markets in particular. And I think rest of the world, where the more you just think of Canada, my, my home, where they have reset. The Canadians have trouble getting fixed rates for a long periods of time, partly because if they have a fixed rate and they decide to move house, they owe the bank the difference in rates, right? So there's never... Yeah, so the so a lot of people in Canada, but I would put England, Germany, uh, the Swedes, uh, the Netherlands, and the same camp, have a lot of reset risk right now. And so if I'm worried about anywhere, it's not the US, and hence the US dollar, it's rest of the world.
1: I also don't see excess, well, there's a lot of leverage, but it's not... It doesn't feel like systematic, a systemic leverage, which is what you talked about. That doesn't feel like it's a, it, it, you know, at this kind of structure of economy, it feels that rates go up, the economy slows down, but you're not going to expose who's swimming naked. Of sure, there's always going to be companies, there's always going to be some sector that runs into trouble, but it doesn't feel like it's systemic. And I, I think a lot of people have a recency bias. So they're like, see, it's going to be 2008 all over again. I'm like, feels to me like 1990. Um, where we had a very common garden business cycle. There was a emerging markets got a bit clocked. The uh, housing market slowed down for a period of time. We lost a few jobs, but in the end, it was no big deal.
0: Well, I would say commercial real estate got hit in the nineteen nineties. Yeah. I mean, Toronto, the Olympia, New York, the Reichman Brothers, things like that.
1: Yeah, um, the same in London, Canary Wharf, the Reichman Brothers.
0: Yeah. So I do think there will be things that, go bump in the night. That that doesn't... But you're right, is it systemic yet? And again, I think part of the reason it's not is because 08 is so close that the obvious holes were fixed. And we haven't had enough time to get away from it to do bad things again.
1: Talking of 08, there was a... The Basel III agreements changed how the banks dealt with risk and bonds on their balance sheet. And we've seen a market... That is very illiquid. We, you know, can use the you know, that um, I think it's the Treasury Liquidity Index for bonds or whatever. It's just it shows a very illiquid bond market, and we've got the massive hoarding in the reverse repo. And Janet Yellen started talking about this, that maybe we need to release this because it's not good to have limited liquidity in the bond market. What do you think about that? And do you think there's a chance she does? Because if I think it does, then bond yields. Change lower much faster, because Jamie Dimon and others can put a lot more of their balance sheet back into the bond market. Or is that not the case? How do you think about?
0: Mm. So when I think of liquidity in the bond market um, at this stage, you know the the bond market volatility has gone up. So look at the move index. So if you think about the equivalent of the VIX, which is the S and P five hundred is the move index MLBE, and your clients can go online and look at it the move index is definitely popped over the last 12 months and has stayed relatively high. I, and I, my crystal view is I think that's in decay now because we priced in a lot of different things, including the bulk of the Fed heights. The hard part is when the Fed's moving so aggressive, whether it's 04 to 06 or today, uh, when they're moving so aggressively, or 1994, which share range banded the first time, uh, it's hard to say is something liquid, or is it just because... Prices have moved so fast. Buyers and sellers can't agree. The seller wants to buy it you know, or sell it in yesterday's price. The buyer wants and watch tomorrow's price. So spreads
1: open wider. And
0: I think that's what happened in the treasury market uh, and in other markets as well in the last 12 months. And I think it still persists now in the stock market where you can just imagine people saying, I think this company's worth more. And the buyer's going, I think it's worth less. P.E. should be lowering I'm not going to get into that. It's not my place. I'm on your bond side and you never- want to take any guides from a bond investor of stocks. They're really dumb of <laughs> <up> you. <yet. laughs> but um, when we think of it um, as, as investors in Merrimack, we, we think, you know, that liquidity is something that the Fed thinks about all the time in contact with markets, I think it's still pretty decent other than vol is higher and will stay probably a little higher. Now, I'll give you one more thing. I think the Fed has learned a lesson with Chibi. I think if you go back to 2008, and we had Chair Bernanke, we were not even clear, what were the rules of the road for the Federal Reserve? Could they do some of the things that we've later done, right? So remember how long it took to get packaged together in 08. We, we didn't get it really done until it was President Obama's administration, right? He hadn't been uh, formally sworn in, but he was the, the new president. And, and the reason I say that is, we weren't sure the rules of the road. Then we did a lot of things. QE, the Fed, you know, had a lot of power given to it. And I think we've used QE a lot in the last decade. You know, it's like, give an entity some power and they get to like it. And the first thing they did is they suppress a wall. And I think at first was, okay, we could handle suppression of wall. We can do this. And they did it. And then 2020 comes along. We said, had the perfect example of suppression of wall. You know, we all go home with COVID. We're all trying to find toilet paper and we're scared. And the Fed cuts to zero, those Canadians do their version as well. The, the, the British, um, the, the Bay of England, I mean, and, and the reason I say this is it was all designed to suppress ball, and it was a continuation of what we learned post to eight. On the other side of this, the inflation we've got today, I think the Fed, one of the lessons for the Fed is, aha, uh-huh, we can't suppress ball too much. We have to have people, winners and losers in this so that they allocate capital properly, whatever that means, right? And so the reason I'm saying this is I think that the Fed is happy to have a little higher volatility. So, And people call that illiquidity, kind of maybe, but it's definitely risk. And I think the Fed's comfortable there. No, they don't want unlimited risk, but that Fed put that was at the money is now way out of the money because they think they see the flip side of it. And this gets me back to why I'm more comfortable with 2% inflation long-term. They can do it. And I think what we have to do is recognize that part of what you have to do to allow for 2% is things get a little messier in econ. And I think that's where we are. So I'm still pretty comfortable with liquidity overall in the treasury market. You can do whatever size you pretty much need to get done. It's still working very well. Um, the on the run, off the run treasury numbers are too bad right now in terms of basis points. So it's not horrible, like at all, and and I think it's kind of something we should get used to. And if you if you ask me, it's a back to the 1990s ball. We're just taking out a lot of the suppression we did, the heavy hand suppression, and we're just going back to more 1990s, where you can still make a lot of money in markets. There's still a lot of upside for risk assets, which just it just you're gonna have a little more daily ball to handle. And so a treasury market right now. The treasury market volatility daily is six to eight basis points a day, which is to say when it happens, there's no information in there.
1: It's just bouncing. Something I'm looking at is the interest payments. How I've looked at this and not in the, oh my God, the Fed is going to, the the government's going to go bust. I'm not looking at that. What I've looked at is that the aggregate interest payments for the private sector and the public sector because they're both around 100% of gdp in debt and let's say the trend rate of economic growth is 1.75 wherever the number is right well all gdp growth if if interest rates are at 2% or then kind of 100% of gdp goes to finance either the private sector or the government sector And the other half, I did the math, seems to end up on the balance sheet in the interest payments. Now, whether that's right or not, irrelevant for now, but there's an enormous amount of debt that's very cyclical right now. There's like a three and a half year business cycle that seems to have come into play since 2009, because everyone reset at zero, and they set their debts between three and five years, and lo and behold, you've got cyclicality how are they going to roll the both the private and the government at 4% or 3% if economic growth is at 2% they're just going to create a much slower economy going forwards because you're eating out of gdp itself not even gdp growth that's kind of how i'm thinking about it so i the question is is can they actually keep rates up
0: it's hard to do um, one of the reasons the fed has reversed repo is so that when they raise rates, interest rates actually go up. Because you'd hate to raise rates if you're the Fed and then have no one come to the party as the market's clearing below it, right? And so it is it is very hard um, to keep interest rates hard, high. And that's why I wouldn't assume that they can stay high. So, you know, even though I think we're on this green run right now, pending data, it wouldn't surprise me to get on that black run, which means a little lower inflation, your point. And all of a sudden, bond market wants to roll tide, right? And I think that's where, you know, as as investors, we have to be okay. We can be on one run, but we have to be very sensitive. This is the other scenario, and it's a real scenario, and we have to be careful when we jump to that one. Um, and, and here's the thing.
1: Who's but there again, know? for a bond investor, it's kind of nice because you're saying, fine, I get the coupon. Everything's fine right now, but I might get accelerated performance if Flat. if we happen to... Go off the green run by mistake and we're on the black run. You're like, fine, I'll make money. kind of yeah, works. You'll
0: make a lot of money. And think about this. Like if you're an investor, the average age of the investor, probably my age, which is not so, so young anymore. And the reason I think this is important is if you're starting to have head into retirement, people, investors start thinking, I really want to take better care of my money or I want to make sure I have enough money. To get me where I want to go in ten or twenty years, um, and things like that. The reason this matters is the bond market's a beautiful place. Think about last year. If you were a bond investor and you put your whole net worth into the bond market the day before Chair Powell started raising rates, and you fast forward to today, you—if you were in one of my, you know, then my tactical—you're down like six percent. So in a three hundred-year event, and you put—you got it dead wrong. You lost six percent. Boy, that's a pretty good market. That's a pretty good market. The worst crisis in the history of the bond market, and you're not down fifty percent. You're not six, and you're yielding six and a half, seven. You're going to get it all back, and you're sitting here poised if we jump runs here to get it back like that. And I, and the reason I say this is as we age, we've had this amazing amount, and I talk about U.S. and Canada in particular here. We've had an amazing wealth effect the last thirty years. Uh, so many Canadians and Americans have done so well because we haven't had a war, you know, um, when those kind of things, we haven't had famines, we've had pretty much continuous okay cycles, even OA was just an aberration for asset prices, that you end up with a lot of people that have as much debt worth as they want, or especially when they can combine that maybe with pension, Social Security, all the extras. The reason I say that, it could be a world that as bond rates stay high, the sucking sound you hear is other asset classes losing investors because the bond market is so much easier.
1: Yeah, because if you're, you're a European, you're already a bond investor because the whole pension system switched to the bonds. They made it part of the regulatory framework, while the US, Canada, and a few other countries have been more equity-based. So people have taken more risks to get higher returns, but- that equation when you're in your 60s as you know the baby boomers are now that's a little bit scary. Well I look at a number of US states you know I run a, a lot of money
0: for institutional investors in the US and and they've done a great job they're hundred percent funded now. state pensions, hospital pensions if you're hundred percent funded the one thing you don't want to do is lose funding status and if the bond market can start hitting its hurdle rates, and maybe you say, I, I can't take treasuries at 4%, but I'm going to buy a blend that yields six, six and a half for five years or six years. I can buy those. That means I can take my equity allocation down, which is more volatile, obviously. You know, So you can imagine a world where the mix shift here is if, bond, if bonds stay at these levels, it, it, it has more implications, not for the bond market, but for other markets.
1: Although, I find it very hard for bonds to stay at this level, ignoring the economic stuff, just because everybody will buy bonds. right? As you're saying, everybody's incentivized to lock in their pension fund surplus funding now, finally, after you know a decade and a half of underfunding. So, you create the flows of which bond yields can't really stay here, because that's a lot of money in the pension system that needs to lock in.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, we actually have a simulation we run at Fidelity. Again, it's not a, it's not a forecast, so let me make this clear. It's a, it's a 5,000 simulation model. And all it does, it says, given the level of spread, say, level of interest rates, and forward-looking differences in volatility. I don't want to get into too much detail. Given where those are. what There's a Monte Carlo simulation. Yeah, what has happened in the past? And what's happened one quarter ahead? And so if we go back to a year ago, that same setup was saying the bond market had a 40% chance of a negative return in the next quarter. And that, and that was pre-Chair Powell getting going, right? So 40% chance. So your base case was that the bond market was going to have trouble making any money. That could have been a base case in that simulation. Not a forecast, just base case. Fast forward to today. The model, or this model, the, the simulation is saying you have a 50% chance of making a capital gain in the bond market
1: yeah it makes it makes sense where we are in the cycle and the flows and all of the stuff it, that's what it's saying but it but it's
0: it's kind of a stupid model it doesn't have any you know stuff it doesn't know anything about business cycles or so forth it's just saying when you've been here before half the time you've generated a capital gain. in addition to your coupon uh
1: one question I haven't covered yet is is QE dead or is it coming back again in the the bottoms of a business cycle.
0: You and I, we had this. Uh, I tried to get through this a little bit. I think the, the QE still owns toolbox to the Fed will always be there. QE and all the tools. I think though it's going to be a, a, a higher hurdle to use it because I think it does have side effects, and I think that suppression of volatility does work, but it suppresses vol and leads to maybe um, more inflation than, than the market thought. So I, I would say not dead, but it's more out of the money. And I look at QE as sort of the Fed put is part of the Fed put. I think it puts further of the money. The Fed's, I think, saying maybe a little vol here. It's not a bad thing for investors so that they they know they have to price
1: their investment decisions over the appropriate horizons. The question is, is what is the put on now? This is what I'm trying to think through. Is it on the equity market? The equity market doesn't really want to go down a lot. It feels like 1990, it went down 20%. This time, it's gone down 30, whatever. Very common garden recession-style stuff is the fed put just unemployment now
0: i think it's actually on financial conditions which is a version of what you said financial conditions i think they want financial conditions to be about 100 which is say not too tight but not too easy so we got back in 2020 so april may 2020 we got financial conditions to like 97 98 which is it's an index so 100 is neutral below means easy above means tighter we got them to extraordinarily easy conditions and anything you bought was a good idea. Just hit it with there and spend more tomorrow, right? Fast forward to today, I think the Fed would say, let's keep this to 100. We don't have to have financial conditions be 102 and super tight, but they can't be super easy. The stock market falls inside of financial conditions. It's part of the whole story. Because think about it this way if your stock price has a lot of value, you can use that for leverage, you can click, uh, you give it as collateral, right? And so, Financial conditions includes the stock market, and so when stocks stay at these levels, financial conditions have to be tighter in other places because, and if the stock market falls, some financial conditions can fall in other places like in, in uh, uh, interest rates and in, in credit and lending standards and so forth. So I would say focus on that financial conditions number because it brings in the stock market and the interest rates and
1: credit. You're in. Tim, who you know, is a good friend. Yeah, he's he's got a thesis that I I I kind of have a lot of sympathy for. I, there's some a lot of similarities between the 1940s and 50s. You know, everybody comes into the labour force. There's no supply because the factories have been making something else, and you know you get this massive inflation spike, and then it comes back down through base effects and the nor- normalities and the period then is inflation came down reasonably fast and bond yields did okay in this part of the cycle, um, but the stock market didn't go anywhere for two or three years until it all settled out. Sounds not dissimilar to the kind of idea that you know one of the outputs that's in your head is maybe other assets just don't do particularly well for the time being while this clears through. But it doesn't have to be catastrophic. It could just trade sideways.
0: It, it absolutely could easily trace sideways. In fact, my, my base for for clients name now is if you're negative on bonds, you're probably negative on everything, right? Because if the bond market has to sell off here, it it might rule that we don't have inflation under control, which means the Fed has to raise rates h- h- faster. That means that every company's last IRR decision was wrong. It was too low. It has to go up. And so all of a sudden, earnings, yields... Of the stock market have to go up which requires the p to go down so that's why i'm looking at the bond market we're on the green run which actually feels okay and this is kind of where the market is credit spreads are okay they're they're a little tight to history they're not horribly tight to history they're certainly not pricing in a recession not at all we are if you think there's a hard landing coming the credit markets are not there and they will have to move um and and I think though they're probably pricing in what a lot of the big risk assets like stocks are saying, you know, we're gonna bumble along here, we're on the screen run. And I think the market in the back of its mind it says, and there's a chance that we get on the black
1: run. And we just gotta be ready. So you're more in the kind of soft landing, no landing, muddle along kind of camp, as opposed to and again, everything changes with data and everything else. I'm not holding you to it, but just generally speaking, looking at market conditions, you're kind of thinking. We kind of get muddled through.
0: Well, I'm definitely a now caster. <laughs> if you think there's a forecast here, you're wrong. I'm now casting. Um, and, and every month, you know what I think? To think about the baseball idea of tagging up for a fly ball, I think that you should think about that. For every CPI print, as investors, we had to tag up and just wait to see if the ball's caught or something, and then you can advance to the next base. Um, it, because the data matters, because it's what the feds watch. And the Fed, because they're so focused on it, you might as well focus on that. But then for the rest of the month, once you have the data, you can go do your thing again. until the next month's CPI data or PCE. And I think jobs falls in there too. So you have to tag it up a little bit. And that's kind of what I'm doing right now. I'm not really trying to forecast much. Put together a nice diversified portfolio. We have lots of room left in, in all of our buckets. So if something does go bang of the night. I'm hoping we have an obvious asset allocation. We're trying to get as much yield as we can because I want to compound fast for clients. Because you know, if we put together a portfolio that yields north of 6%, I get a percent and a half every quarter that I have to reinvest in the market. And so this is another thing for the market bid for bonds is all that yield is getting reinvested. And there's a lot of index money that says, hey, I get it. I put it back with the curve because my job as the index provider is to get the beta of that market. And whether or not you're giving me new cash flows as an investor, or I'm just getting more coupon, it's just a bid for bonds. And so we're trying to be really cognizant here that everything we look at here says, this is a pretty decent time for bonds. I should, have, I look at this, is a nice time for bonds. Um, with the caveat, you have fall coming and you have unknowns that you have to tag up to, but th- there's good stories here and in the bond market. And I think just don't be too over any one of your skis, right? Don't have too much duration. But I wouldn't also be just floating rate notes today. They were they were the winner last year in the club books. Beautiful viewer floaters, well done. I think though there's a more balanced portfolio because if you get that black run rally, you'll be upset because the floaters will reset their coupon every day, and you won't get any capital gain. So you kind of have to do that dance.
1: Final question for you, because. It actually has the most knock-on effects of everything. I think most of the rate of change of rates has happened, as you say, and a lot of that. And you're a fixed income investor. I think the one single most important thing for everybody else is what happens to the yield curve. So yield curve's been kind of stable for a while at pretty negative levels. Do you think it stays stable for a while? Or does it finally start to steepen? Because that steepening yield curve actually changes the structure of risk in a lot of other markets. Absolutely. So here's, there's two things to think right now. Yield curves
0: inverted right now, and and so if you're an investor, the the easy win is a barbell, okay? Because you you own a whole bunch of front end cash, you own bank loans, CLOs, whatever you like that floats, and then you buy 5 ten year treasuries, right? And you do a, a that linear line. And that yield lies above the yield curve and you have a win. okay so the the positive carry trade in the bond market is this inverted curve. So as a bond investor for me, it's really hard for me to put a, a steepener on because that means taking all my wings and making them the middle. okay So that's a it's called a bullet. so so right now, and this is a rare thing in history, the steepener the or I mean the flattener, it's the easy positive carry trade for all of us bond investors, and that's and that's a huge problem because since I'm now casting, <laughs> I I can see that, and I'm and I'm reluctant to do that. We do know what you're saying though is when and if well, we get on that black run and we get to inflation that's more towards where the Fed's two percent target is, four percent ten year Treasuries isn't going to be you can't be. At, at most, you're thinking maybe 100 basis points in real. So 2% inflation plus 100, that's three. It's the 10-year yield. And so in that world, when that is about to happen, all of us investors are going to have to herd quickly into this buy the six to seven to eight-year part of the curve. And what we're going to buy are treasuries because we can do that in one trade. And, and it'll be almost self-fulfilled. And, and so you're kind of in this world, easy positive carry trade, I still think that's going to work for you. Tag up each month to CPI. Make sure. And if we only scroll around, if it's falling, you got a chance, a really good chance.
1: And the other one that correlates very well with the yield curve is uh, increasing the unemployment rate. So that's the other one I've got my eye on. You know, We're, we're seeing noise around unemployment and layoffs, but it's not really coming through yet. Uh, so we're still on a green run, or maybe arguably we're still at the at the chairlift and haven't even got on the run yet. Yeah. But it depends how that trajectory goes because then the yield curve steepens and the bomb rally becomes very meaningful.
0: Well, here's the thing. I'm assuming that wages are sticky. I'm assuming there's no unemployment. And so when I focus on OER, that one component as the change agent, that's because that's the one we think has the highest probability of change. If wages start to decelerate and fall, you know, you're now you're on something even steeper. That that run you're on, you're not chairlifting. Where it's you're you're a slalom skier now.
1: So, in derivative terms, the bond market to you feels a bit like a self uh, self funding call option. You get paid. You can sit there, and if something changes terribly, I mean, in in economic terms, you get a lot of upside. But worst case. You're getting paid to do the trade, and it's fine.
0: I love getting paid to wait. That's a beautiful thing.
1: <laughs> Jeff, fabulous discussion as ever. Really enjoyed it. Let's see how it all plays out. You know, it's going to be a very interesting year. So, will be. Thanks for having me. Good luck with everything. Let's see how it goes. You know, it's lovely speaking to Jeff. As I said in the intro, he's always super engaging. He also is not. He's probabilistic. He's not about certainties. He doesn't like I think this. He's very humble for one of the biggest asset managers in the world. And he's given us a couple of outcomes and some real gems there. He doesn't structurally think the world's changed in terms of yields, GDP growth, inflation. But he's kind of listen, it could be stickier, could be around, but I kind of get paid for it, uh, with bond yields at four percent. So I'm sitting there taking in yield and if we turn into the black run, which is um, inflation starts falling faster or unemployment starts rising, then there's a huge performance from bonds. So, you know, I, I think that's a very sensible strategy. It's kind of like it's the comfort strategy and it has the upside. But I, for me, the big takeaway is he, like me, doesn't think things have structurally changed, that we are still in a world of low growth and low inflation. I hope you enjoyed it.